0: Take your Bibles and find Psalm 32. Psalm 32. This morning's songs, the lyrics in particular, have been such a a wonderful introduction to the theme, to the subject of Psalm 32. And I hope that as we look at another song in Psalm 32 and lyrics here, that we will find more sweet lyrics of forgiveness. Psalm 32 is a sweet song of forgiveness, but it's not simply sweet because it's not challenging or convicting. But it is sweet ultimately because there is a God who stands behind the truth in this psalm that is ever ready to forgive. According to the superscription, Psalm 32 is a psalm written by David, and it is a maskeel, Uh, The meaning of this term is uncertain. Some suggest that it has musical emphasis, that it denotes a skillful psalm or a skillfully performed song. Other suggestions emphasize content, that a masqueal is a song that imparts wisdom or a wisdom song performed to music. Ultimately, we don't know. There's certainly wisdom in this psalm. The superscription ascribes this to David, which it's interesting to note the Apostle Paul affirms in Romans chapter 4, verse 6. So we can be confident that this was penned by David. As for the historical context of Psalm 32, it is potentially related to a time of great sin in David's life the time when he coveted and committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of of Uriah and then orchestrated the murder of Uriah in an effort to cover up his sin. And you can read of that in Second Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And if this is so, then this psalm would take place after Nathan the prophet confronts David and thereby after the confession that we have recorded in Psalm 51. So if this terrible period of sin in David's life is The occasion for his writing Psalm 32, then historically, biographically, Psalm 32 actually takes place after Psalm 51. Another item of note is the term silah. It occurs three times in our psalm, and again, like maskil, it has an uncertain meaning. It could be a notion for a musical interlude. Commonly, it's seen as a call to pause and consider. Silah, think about it. And the idea there fits if this was a musical interlude that was to provide opportunity for reflection. Why start with those comments? Because psalms are unique. Psalms are unique and they're intended to have a feel and a flow that the Lord's people can read and interact with and take in. And some of these notes help us as we read and process the psalm because so much of the value of the psalms is in their reading and is in our hearing them. So as I read, pay attention to the flow of this psalm. Note distinct sections. You will hear a a little bit of a different focus as we make our way through the psalm. It takes different approaches to a common subject, which is forgiveness. But there are unique Views, unique angles through which forgiveness is considered. It moves from exclamation to experience to exhortation, all to communicate wisdom about forgiveness. And follow along as I read Psalm 32. A Psalm of David and How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Salah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Psalm 32 is often considered to be a psalm simply about David's confession or repentance, but it's more complex than that. David's composition can bring comfort, it can bring warning, it can bring chastisement, and it can bring wisdom. It can bring great comfort as we read and contemplate the realities of God's kindness and his mercy and his grace toward undeserving sinners that are rife with guilt. The Apostle Paul even quotes these verses, verses 1 and 2 in Romans 4, 6 through 8, to prove that righteousness is a gift of grace that's freely granted by faith and not by works. It's a comfort. This psalm is fresh with eternal life. It can also bring warning. Warning as we contemplate the intense effects of God's heavy hand of discipline upon believers who will not confess their sins. It can bring needed chastisement as we contemplate the foolishness of stubbornly holding on to sin, silent with gritted teeth, refusing to acknowledge our sin to God. And chiefly and most broadly, it's intended to instruct, to give wisdom about forgiveness. In this sweet song, David dispenses this wisdom wisdom about forgiveness in three movements. And those movements, those sections will provide the structure for our look at this psalm this morning. Movement one comes in verses one and two. Wisdom about forgiveness is dispensed in the form of profound declaration. Profound declaration. The psalmist cries out, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. The psalmist declares that those who know forgiveness know great happiness. Blessedness. Blessed are all people who, happy are those who. This is a picture of what all people desire. That is profound happiness, deep seated blessedness. And we ask, who? Who finds themselves in this happy estate? And the psalmist says, Any person who has been forgiven by the Lord. Blessed is anyone who is forgiven. By the Lord. Poetically, David gives us a threefold portrayal of mankind's plight transgression, sin, and iniquity. And then he gives an accompanying threefold portrayal of God's merciful merciful pardon forgiven, covered, and not imputed. Transgression, the term there is crossing the line or boundary of God's law. This is high handed rebellion against God's revealed will. Sin is the most general term here, and that denotes what we have often heard, missing the mark, falling short of God's standard. And iniquity is a twisting or a distortion of what is right. Taken together, we get a comprehensive picture, a devastating picture of mankind's fallen condition. And that's David's point. From whatever angle he can view man's plight, man's sinfulness that needs to be addressed, it's taken. Transgression, high-handed sin, sin, the most general missing the mark, that all fall short of the glory of God. Iniquity, the, the twisting of God's will and desires. Yet happiness, the happiness, the blessedness that he refers to here is that each of these terms, each angle on the iniquity of man is met with divine grace transgression is forgiven sin it's covered iniquity it's not imputed it's not counted forgiven denotes a, a lifting away a burden removed the burden of guilt has been taken away covered that is concealed out of sight sin has been put away imputed it is not counted in the ledger of your life it's accounting terminology it's not reckoned to your account there is no record of sin that stands against you it's the idea and again, while each of those terms is interesting, what's most important and overwhelming is the comprehensive portrait of pardon. Sin comes, transgression, sin, iniquity, all of it, and God has met all of it with grace. Mankind's sin is extensive and all encompassing, and so is God's forgiveness. And David says, in this is blessedness. Blessed are those that know this reality. Happy, that's the idea. Happy, full of happiness are those whose iniquity, whose sin, whose transgression has been pardoned by the Lord. Profound blessedness. Now the last line of verse two brings forth another feature that's present in the blessed soul. He says, and that is blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And this refers to the inner life of the forgiven. There's not duplicity. There's no guile in those who are forgiven, but honesty. Honesty about one's condition before a holy God. The forgiven, the blessed, I should say, they've had transgression forgiven, they've had sin covered, their iniquity has not been imputed and they have an inner life that is not marred by deceit. Their spirit is not marked by guile. The implication is that the truly forgiven and therefore the truly blessed aren't feigning penitence and harboring sin in deceit. That's the idea. This blessedness that's available to those who are forgiven, who's a reality to those who are forgiven, it doesn't come through deception There's an honesty that's implied. The converse is that those who deceitfully hide sin and feign repentance do not know the joy of forgiveness. And so David starts to sort of tip his hand a little bit to what's going to come in verse 5 when he recounts that his sin was acknowledged. His iniquity, it wasn't hidden. That's the idea. In whose spirit is no deceit. There's no hidden sin. There's no deception that's going on. Those who are forgiven are those whom, as we'll see through David's experience, have been honest about their sin. David's profound declaration at the beginning of this psalm invites its hearers to consider just how wonderful it is to be forgiven, just how wonderful it is to be pardoned. I have to admit, I found myself astonished at how unastonished I often am that I've been forgiven. And David, you know, grabs us by the head and looks us in the eye and says, how blessed, happy, deep-seated blessedness are those who have been forgiven. Forgiveness from God is not a simple part of a gospel equation that we acknowledge and move on from. The reality of forgiveness received from a holy, righteous God is spirit-lifting. It should be affection-enlivening. And it's truth. And those who know the depth of their sin know the blessedness of forgiven. Being forgiven. The blessedness of forgiveness. And we often need to be reminded of what we've been given. And this first movement of David's sweet song does just that. You hear that as you read, right? If you are forgiven, you're blessed beyond measure. I think there's kind of two aspects we want to have in mind. Sometimes the notion of ongoing forgiveness and the need of ongoing forgiveness in the life of a Christian may be a little bit confusing in light of the fact that we, as we sung this morning, we're free and finally forgiven in the Lord Jesus. I think this psalm is intended to be for believers, as we're going to see, it says a word, of course, to those who are apart from Christ and invites them to receive this forgiveness but the psalm from here on out is mostly focused on the ongoing forgiveness in the life of God's children and the need for it. But at the beginning we have, it's, it's both and. Blessed, happy are those who know free, full, final forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ. But also, as one of Christ's people, when you confess sin and you receive fresh pardon every time you're at the throne of grace, these verses apply to that as well. Blessedness, happiness is knowing that your sin has been forgiven. Now understanding this blessed estate of the forgiven was not only David's by inspiration. He knew this by experience. He knew forgiveness and he knew the depth of guilt and shame that had riddled his soul. And he recounts his experience in verses 3 through 5. And verse 3 begins the second movement of David's song. In movement two, what we see is wisdom about forgiveness is dispensed in the form of personal testimony. The psalm shifts from this profound declaration to personal testimony. Verse three, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Salah. In stark contrast to the blessedness declared in verses 1 and 2, David... Has experienced the agony of unconfessed sin. Verses 3 and 4 detail his misery, and then verse 5 reveal the relief. Note that the misery is occasioned by silence. David's misery is occasioned by silence about his sin. That is the converse of acknowledging and exposing personal sin. He wouldn't admit it. The imagery used here is graphic. His body wasting away, groaning all day. God's heavy hand pressing down on him. His vitality, his life drained away, sapped by the fever heat of summer. And though it's poetry, I want to say we shouldn't be quick to dismiss this as figurative. Who here hasn't expected to experience the physical effects of nerves? Doubt, anxiety, disappointment, sadness, a pit in your stomach, butterflies, the effects of heartache. We're complex people. Right? That's how God made us. And there's connection between or immaterial and we shouldn't discount that silence about sin can result in such effects as David describes. Furthermore, other occasions in God's Word seem to describe physical effects as a result of sin. For example, Paul notes that some who were ill in Corinth were ill for their abuses at the Lord's table. And you can see that in 1 Corinthians 11:30. This is real agony. And apparently it involved physical writhing. And while this was occasioned by David's silence about his sin, by his refusal to acknowledge his guilt before God, his agony and suffering are ultimately attributed to the Lord's chastening hand in verse 4. Day and night, the Lord's heavy hand was upon David. David's silence brought about discipline. And the Lord's discipline brought about grief, guilt, and agony. David could not escape from the firm grip of his God. And as the Lord pressed on his soul, David's misery increased so long as he was silent. He says, I was groaning all day long, literally roaring with agony. And the picture is that his strength was gone. He had no go. He had no up and at him. He had no no will, no motivation. He was like an animal that's parched, emaciated, feebly wandering the desert while the sun bakes them to death. That's the imagery. His vitality was gone. He had nothing. He recounts this agony this experience occasioned by silence and brought about by God's heavy hand and he says, Salah. Consider it. And while on one hand we want to be warned and think, I don't want that to happen to me. That sounds bad. That sounds rough. There is grace here. And we don't want to miss that. David doesn't say, when I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. The first line of verse 4 is critical. It was the Lord's hand on his servant's heart. And that's grace. That's kindness. God would not allow his servant to harbor sin and deceit in the recesses of his heart With no effect. It is grace that the Lord pressed in and brought forth the misery of guilt that would ultimately move David, as we'll see, toward confession. The Lord will not allow his children to perpetually conceal their sin. We need to be reminded of that. We need to be warned about the effects of concealing sin and then reminded of the grace and kindness of the Lord that he will discipline his children. He disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews 12, five and following. He disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And while it is sorrowful, it yields, as the writer of Hebrews says, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. David's experience makes clear that wholeness and well-being, happiness, blessedness are not the privilege of those who are silent and concealing their sin. So his declaration starts out and extols the joy, the happiness, the blessedness of being forgiven and yet he recounts his experience, his testimony where he knew a period where that was not his biography. And it wasn't his biography because of his silence Because the Lord would not allow him to remain that way and pressed in and brought about the agony of guilt. And as we see, moving on in verse 5, the Lord's heavy hand brought David around. So, what could bring an end to the misery that's described graphically in verses 3 and 4? And the answer is so simple simple confession. Simple confession. Verse five I acknowledged my sin to you. My iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. After the detail of his misery, the simplicity here is stunning. He was honest. He stopped his silence. There was no deceit. He acknowledged his sin to the Lord. He confessed. He was honest. And then five, six, seven steps later. No, very simple, you forgave me. The moment that David's silence stopped, the moment that the guile in his heart that would result in silence and deceit The moment that that stopped, forgiveness granted. He confessed, forgiveness granted. It's as simple as saying, I came clean, and the Lord forgave me immediately. Right then, right there. David, in his song, in his poem, again, uses the comprehensive terms to describe his sins. Sins acknowledged, iniquities unhidden, transgressions are confessed, and forgiveness is granted. And then he again invites us to consider. Salah. Think about that. Think about the awful effects of hiding sin. The graciousness of the Lord not allowing his children to harbor sin unchecked and undisciplined. And yet the relief the relief that came, the forgiveness, the pardon, the burden lifting and removal of that guilt, all from simple confession. The accuser and enemy of our soul whispers, that can't be true, that's too easy. And you're far too guilty. Our pride says, there must be more. It can't be that easy. It can't me just be simply admitting with honesty my sin before the Lord. I must be able to contribute something. Yet the only something that could be done was accomplished nearly 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem where God the Son incarnate suffered and died as a substitutionary sacrifice for all those who had placed their faith in him. After he was buried... He was raised on the third day. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father until that day where he comes to take his people home. And there on that cross, God canceled out the certificate of debt that stood against believers, making all who trust him alive together with him, having forgiven all their transgressions. Colossians 2. That is good news. That is the basis for eternal life and the basis for all forgiveness that we receive in our lives of faith, awaiting the time where we will be with our Savior. Never again to confess sin. But it is that simple because of what Christ did. We bring honest confession. And the Lord forgives. And verse six brings another shift in approach. And this time, he moves from this experience now to exhortation. Verses six through 11 have what I'm calling our third and final movement of David's sweet song. And here, wisdom about forgiveness is dispensed in the form of pastoral admonition. Pastoral admonition having declared the blessedness of forgiveness, the happiness of those who find themselves forgiven, and then having shared of his experience of forgiveness, David now offers spiritual guidance about this matter of forgiveness. In verses six and seven, the focus is on the protection and security that God graciously provides to his people. It's essentially like this, if it's true that he forgives if it's true that I, I confess my transgressions to the Lord and he forgave the guilt of my sin. Then David says, therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. David urges the Lord's people, the godly, that is those who know and love the Lord. This is not some statement about Stirring up your holiness and your affections and doing some good works over here so that you can call yourself godly and then get to the point of confession and prayer. That's not what's going on. David's referring to godly ones as those who are the Lord's, believers. It's like when in the New Testament, we're called saints, it's positional. Those godly ones, those who know and love the Lord. David urges, if the Lord forgives, like this. If the Lord forgives, When we acknowledge and confess our sin to him, then pray to him in a time when he may be found. In the context, the implication is those godly ones know they're sinners. They know that they need forgiveness. And David urges, give voice to that honestly. Don't be silent. Now, when is it that the Lord may be found? When we're convicted of sin. When you're convicted of sin, when you're prompted by a guilty conscience to confess, when the Spirit of God is moving your heart toward repentance. That's the idea. God's not lost, we know that. This isn't some sort of a time frame that we can discern and articulate, but it does denote something very important. And that is that there's evidently a time when going to the Lord as David did is more available to us than other times. The warning is this. If you're under conviction of sin, don't wait. If by God's grace you know your sin and you're prompted to seek forgiveness, do it. That's the notion. Pray, cry out when the Lord may be found. Hebrews 3 picks up this idea. Seek the Lord while the opportunity is there. Before what? Before you're hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin. David says cry out before then. What's the result of that crying out? What's the result of that turning to the Lord? The end of verse 6, surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. Those who pray to God can be certain that troubles that break out like a flash flood will not overtake those ultimately who seek refuge in the Lord. The Lord's forgiveness is a refuge. It is a shelter for his people. And it is there for those who seek him. He preserves his people when the troubles of life are upon them. That's the idea. We need not be afraid that we'll turn to the Lord in prayer He won't respond. David says, those who cry out to the Lord in prayer can be certain, surely a flood of great waters won't reach you. Surely there will be victorious deliverance. Surely you will be protected. Verse seven, you, David says, in reflecting on this truth and still instructing us, but now in reflection upon the fact that God's provision protects his people. He's he's secure. He's a shelter for those who seek him. David says, You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You, God, surround me with songs of deliverance. There's celebration, there's victory, there's assurance. Again, these verses have that warning to us, right? Call on him while he may be found. Implication don't be hardened. And yet they're full of grace. The note is on the protection and the provision, the security that is found in the God of forgiveness. And we would say, who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want what God has promised to give his people? And yet at times, we are stubborn. Stubborn sinners who act more like unruly horses or mules Than we do devoted servants of the Lord. And that's where David turns his attention next, continuing this instruction. Verse eight continues his pastoral admonition, his pastoral guidance in seeking forgiveness with a surprising address. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Now there's debate here. Commentators differ on whether David is speaking or whether God himself is the instructor? Either view is possible, and in a sense, as this is inspired scripture, it's both. I tend to think in this psalm it's David speaking. I think he's continuing his position of instructor that started in verse six. I think he's giving pastoral guidance and counsel. And perhaps this is even fulfillment of his words in psalm fifty one thirteen in light of his confession when he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. And clearly here he is teaching us God's ways as it relates to forgiveness. So wisdom is being dispensed. These verses have a wisdom thing. They sound like Proverbs. It's instruction, it's teaching, it's counsel. He's intended to guide us on the right path. I'm gonna teach you in the way you should go, the way you should live, the way you should walk. And in this sweet song, this concerns how we approach forgiveness. This is the path of confessing and the path of receiving forgiveness. Being forgiven is true blessedness. He's made that clear. It's offered freely. It's offered immediately to those who confess their sins. And those who cry out will find protection in the Lord. Yet, yet we can be a prideful people. God's people can be stubborn and prideful in their sin. And David says, when that's the case, that we resemble foolish and stubborn beasts. Verse nine, do not be as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check, Otherwise, they will not come near to you. The illustration is clear, right? It's plain. Stubborn horses and mules must be brought under control by the use of a bridle. A firm grip on the reins, metal in their mouth, steering an animal that left to itself would go its own way. There's a contrast here between those who rightly see the Lord as a hiding place where refuge and victorious deliverance are found and prideful, stubborn individuals that will not come near the Lord without force. And in the testimony that David gave earlier, he knew the bridling of the Lord. God had used external force to bring him near when he was acting like a stubborn mule. But the better way, he says, the better path, the path in which you should go is to seek the Lord willingly. Reflecting on verse 5 then again, what does that look like? It's exposing sin, finding fresh forgiveness, not concealing it in deceit. Not demonstrating your heart condition and acting like a stubborn beast that the Lord has to bring under control. Proverbs 28, 13 through 14 says this He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Pastoral guidance from David don't be a stubborn mule. That's what he says. Acknowledge your sin. Draw near to the Lord without bridle in your mouth. Come as you're supposed to, as you've been trained to, as you've experienced and known the Lord's faithfulness and tenderness and readiness to forgive. Back in Psalm 32, verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness, shall surround him. The idea here is that this axiom, this truism should move God's people toward confession. The wicked here are those who do not know God. They don't know blessedness. They only know sorrow. They don't know what it is to be forgiven. But another reminder, another gracious reminder that those who are dependent on the Lord can be certain of his love and care. And this seems to be the final admonition from David toward seeking forgiveness. When a believer conceals sin, we're like a mule. We live as as the wicked, as those who don't know the Lord, and that can only lead to sorrow. That's what this says. But there's loving kindness for those who trust the Lord. The the, the contrast between how bad it is to hide sin and how free and good it is to seek the Lord in in this psalm is amazing. Who wouldn't choose? In the Lord, there's loving kindness, dependence. I don't even bring anything except open mouth and honesty. The picture of God that unfolds in this song is intended to be welcoming. There's that challenge that's happening, that chastisement, for if we were to go to stray, but it's welcoming. God is for his people. So we just take away God is for you. He provides forgiveness. He's quick to forgive the repentant and he is willing to bring discipline if necessary to draw his children near. So in verse 11, David now calls upon those who know this to rejoice in the Lord. Those who know these realities About our gracious God, are called to rejoice in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. The forgiven are blessed, the forgiven are happy, and those who are happy are to rejoice. Here, it's the upright in heart, similar to earlier, not having deceit in your heart. It is the upright in heart that know the joy of forgiveness, those who are believers. And it describes them here, this phrase in this context, as those who are marked by honest dealing with sin and dependence upon the Lord for forgiveness. And that's happiness. That's blessedness. I was sitting at McDonald's on Friday afternoon this week waiting to meet a friend. And in the background, a song was playing called Happy People. Here's a small sample of this secular psalm. It's only slightly different than Psalm 32. Well, life is short and love is rare and we all deserve to be happy while we're here. Here's to whatever puts a smile on your face, whatever makes you happy people. It's catchy, but it's a psalm of man-centeredness. Sadly, many Christians think this way about their own blessedness. We think that way about happiness. Psalm 32 teaches us we're not to be happy because all of our fleshly desires are met or because we've but because we've been granted divine favor and mercy. We're to be enthralled with God because of what we have not gotten that we deserve. That's happiness. That's blessedness according to the psalmist. Christians should be happy people because forgiven people are blessed. And that's not phony. As we approach the Lord's table, this is not a call to put on a happy face. It's not skin deep. David is not sing here. He does not write here of skin deep happiness. The blessedness of forgiveness is real. The question that we want to ask is how could we who actually know by God's grace the depth of our sin... And the price that was paid for forgiveness and the sweet relief that comes. How could we respond in any other way? It's joy. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice if you've been forgiven. I don't know all the burdens of life that you carried into the room today. I know there are sorrows. I know there are hurts. I know there are concerns. You know, there are things that make happiness and the notion of happiness seem far away, far off from us, from our experience. But on the authority of Psalm 32, I can say if you are forgiven, you are blessed and you know blessedness. And I believe David invites us, he calls us to consider that and then he commands us at the end to rejoice in that. It is an imperative. And it's a command to rejoice, not in our circumstances, but in the Lord. The Lord himself, be glad in the Lord. Ultimately, forgiveness is so precious because it restores our relationship with God himself. And we are to be glad in him and rejoice.